Hello everyone, welcome to A Reason for Hope. We're here once again. We're glad that you are joining us today. Reason for Hope is a hour-long live broadcast which is guided by your questions on the Bible. That's right, you can send your questions in through our multiple online platforms. And we have some wonderful brothers in the Lord here that will love to dive into the Bible to find the answers for those. So if you have questions, please do send them in. My name's Dave Robson. I'll be fielding those questions and all that online activity as we go along with us today. Father and son team to my left, your right, Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing today? We must drink the water. <laughs> you have two. I know oh, I commented, you think you're special because I've only got one and you have two. We look like a trick to Costco over here I'm, without water bottles. But... I, I have none. You have none? <laughs> that is, that is... Let him who has two Costco yeah, water bottles. Yeah, you should share. That share like something you should do. None. <laughs> <laughs> also with us, Pastor Scott over here on my right, your left. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Yeah. It's it's, good to see uh, <laughs> things are hopping online and it's great to be here to talk about them. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, hopefully, you'll give us a little update on that in a moment but as i mentioned reason for hope is a live broadcast we're with you monday through friday 5 to 6 p.m mountain standard time that's here in tucson arizona where we're broadcasting from uh, it's a outreach of calvary christian fellowship so keep that in mind when you're trying to find us and that will help you out you can go to our website calvarychristianfellowship.com that's a really good place a great home base for you to go if uh, especially if you're not a big fan of social media that's our website that we create ourselves and control ourselves so be sure to click around while you're there we have all kinds of events and bible studies if you're here in the tucson arizona area we'd love to have you come visit our church here but if you already have a home church then then enjoy that but for the purposes of today follow that watch live tab right there that will take you out to our live page the direct link for that is ccftucson.online.church should you want to just go directly there or follow the link from our website as i aforementioned You'll see a countdown to our next live show and also a schedule of upcoming events. Not only Reason for Hope, but our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship and other events that we have. But if we are live as we are right now, you'll see the video there. You can sign in with a username of your choice and be part of the broadcast there. I'll be monitoring that and, and uh, receiving your questions through that uh, forum. We're on Facebook, of course, facebook.com slash Tucson, or just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you've been blessed by this ministry, that's a great uh, thing for you to do, to, sh to like and share, share us around. We'd love to reach not only you, but your, your friends and people in your sphere of influence and grow this ministry. So be sure to pass it along. But that's another place you can send your questions in, and I'll be receiving those loud and clear as well. We have an app as well for your mobile device, whether it's on iOS or Android. You'll just uh, look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson in your app store. Look for that white Calvary Chapel Dove logo, and that's our app. You can download that and watch us there as well. And we have a channel on Roku and also on Apple TV. So if you go to your channel store, look for us. You can um, add that channel and watch us on your big screen as well. We're just kind of cool like that. On YouTube, the channel is A Reason for Hope or youtube.com slash at A Reason for Hope 546. That's a great place to go if you want to catch up on shows that you missed. That's a great archive location. If you follow that live tab right there, that's basically an archive of every time we've been live. So if you missed a show or if you want to re-listen to a question, I know this, we go pretty deep sometimes and uh, I know I like to re-listen to questions and the scriptures and stuff like that. It's a great resource for you. You can share those videos um, on other social media platforms as well and all that good stuff. So a reason for hope on YouTube, you'll find us there. Pastor Scott here is on Twitter. So if you are on Twitter, you can follow along with him at Scott. Uh, 
It's easy for you to say at Scott R4H. That's Scott. <laughs> yeah. Letter R number four, letter H, where he posts highlights from the show. He posts commentary on like world events and news events from a biblical and prophetic perspective and all that kind of thing. It's a great, uh, a great resource and I'm sure a lot of fun to follow along with him. So follow Pastor Scott Richards on Twitter as well. And then last but not least, questionsforhope at gmail.com is our email address. Questions for hope spelled out at gmail.com. We receive, of course, questions through that as well, 24-7. If you're listening to us on the radio, you're listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded, so we're not live on the radio per se. So use that email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com, and we will get to that question on our next show. Well, And we are also on Rumble at A Reason for Hope as well. Yes. Now, that's not a live platform, right? But it's Not yet. A, not yet, but it's... Oh, do they have that? We might be live on there? Might be, but yeah. for now. Nice. That's a, uh, You're going to be posting the videos on there as well? Yep. Great as on things are going, we have uh, yesterday's broadcast. The questions of the week are being uploaded, and incrementally, their automatic YouTube sync software is getting our previous broadcast on there as well. Oh, very good. So that's on Rumble, if you've discovered that, and you're part of that as well. Well, Pastor Scott, would you like to pray for us? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, uh, Father, I thank you that we have this opportunity to be able to draw close to you, to be able to uh, hear your voice as your word is shared. That's what we desire, Lord. We pray that your truth would be spoken in love and uh, that we want to preach ourselves, but you and, and uh, Jesus and what you've done for us and your death and your resurrection on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for this awesome privilege of drawing close to you. And thank you, Lord, that your word never returns void. And so, Lord, I pray that you would apply it specifically, personally, supernaturally to the hearts and lives of those who are joining us here today, uh, just giving them exactly the words of encouragement, correction, training and righteousness they might need so that they might be perfect, entire, ready for every good work you have prepared for them. And if there's any on the outside in looking at a relationship with you, I pray that you would draw them to you with loving kindness and compassion, with your uncompromising truth, and uh, open their eyes that they might see their need for you, receive you as their Savior, and be born again, even as this broadcast uh, unfolds. Thank you for this privilege. In Jesus' name, mm. amen. Amen. It's true. Amen. Well, we have some questions already, but was there anything you wanted to share with us, Pastor Scott? Yeah, um, well, some questions that were uh, lopped my way uh, on uh, before the broadcast. Uh, I guess uh, there's no shortage of controversy that emerges from uh, the ABC uh, panel show, The View. Mm. Uh, it seems like uh, one of its functions is to provide clickbait uh, for the internet for the rest of the day. They don't shy away from controversy. And uh, today's program uh, was no exception to the rule. Uh, the uh, person who was a guest, uh, Jane Fonda, along with her close friend and co-star of a uh, broadcast on uh, Netflix, Lily Tomlin, uh, were there. And the conversation came around to a pretty controversial subject, the subject of abortion, uh, the Dobbs decision that mm. uh, allowed the states to decide uh, their own uh, abortion uh, procedures. Mm. Uh, and, and so uh, Jane Fonda, uh, again, uh, made uh, a uh, pretty, I guess, eyebrow-raising remark uh, when asked what her view was of uh, the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. Uh, she said this, we've experienced many decades now of having agency over our body, of being able to determine when and how many children we have. We know what that feels like. We know uh, that what's what that's done for our lives. We're not going back. I don't care what the laws are. We're not going back. When then asked by co-host Joy, Joy Behar 
uh, what can be done besides marching and protesting, Jane Fonda replied, well, I've thought of murder. Now, Joy Behar immediately interjected by saying that Jane Fonda was just, she's just kidding, she's just joking. But if you watch the clip online, and you can do so and come to your own conclusions, but you watch the clip online, there was not the slightest bit of smirk and not the slightest bit of uh, eye roll. Jane Fonda seemed absolutely dead set serious Mm. about what she was saying. And so naturally, uh, the interwebs went aflame. Uh, with all of this, uh, people reacting, uh, mostly con, but some trying to d- defend Jane Fonda's remarks. Uh, the pushback mm-hmm. uh, was uh, so intense uh, that uh, Jane Fonda went uh, ahead and uh, issued a statement uh, saying that uh, she was uh, sorry if she was misunderstood. She certainly wasn't calling uh, for uh, actual out-and-out murder against other people. Only but some, she was. some people weren't really buying that. Uh, in that immediately after the Dobbs decision, you might recall uh, Brett Kavanaugh, the uh, Supreme Court justice who voted in favor of the Dobbs decision that uh, basically kicked uh, the right to determine abortion policy back to the states. That's all it did. It didn't outlaw or make illegal abortion. It just let individual states decide what their policies were going to be. Well, an individual was arrested, uh, armed to the teeth uh, and planning on uh, trying to assassinate Brett Kavanaugh right outside of his house. There were also violent demonstrations outside of his house and a number of Supreme Court justices, which, by the way, is a violation of federal law. Uh, To my knowledge, none of the protesters were ever arrested, fined, anything along that line. Mm. That sort of uh, violent demonstration or threatening of violence is okay. I guess others in our country are not. Now, the questions that we've received about this haven't been so much about the politics of the Roe versus Wade, uh, Dobbs versus Dobbs decision. We can certainly talk about why uh, we as born-again, Bible-believing Christians take a very uh, strong stand on being pro-life. We really believe that uh, scripturally as well as scientifically, Uh, There's no room to maneuver about when life begins. It begins at conception. We can talk a little bit more about that. If you have follow-up questions, please be uh, sure to send those in if you'd like to discuss that issue more in depth or or find out how you can share uh, with other people that might question your Christian convictions along that line. We're certainly open to either of those things. But the question comes up, okay, then uh, if someone like Jane Fonda makes a statement like this, how do we square the circle, so to speak, with the fact that in the year 2000, Jane Fonda came out publicly saying that she'd become a born-again Christian. And this was no minor decision on uh, Jane Fonda's part. Uh, She said that she had embarked on a spiritual journey. She felt a great emptiness within her heart. She had been married to uh, Ted Turner, the founder of Turner Broadcasting and CNN, uh, for 10 years and had just felt a, uh, a real emptiness. Well, she said mm-hmm. that uh, a number of people influenced her, particularly her chauffeur, who invited her to his place of worship, the, the predominantly black Providence Missionary Baptist Church. And so in the year 2000, she started attending Bible study and starting the Bible during that time. She said she read the Gospel of John, which she said left her experiencing the grace of God. Well, with the Hollywood-shattering nose news broke. Uh, that uh, Jane Fonda was billing herself as a born-again Christian. It was touted almost like uh, a Saul of Tarsus uh, Mm. conversion by a lot of people. But, uh, well, 
if uh, it's interesting on the God Reports website, they said if Paul defined orthodoxy, Jane Fonda defied it. Uh, a hardcore feminist for decades, uh, Fonda bristled at the patriarchal language and male dominance in fundamentalist Christianity. She also resented the explosion of publicity of her very private tentative step into religion. Now, Ted Turner, who was an atheist, who was also one of the authors of the Humanist Manifesto, mm. not uh, what I would call an on uh, the, the the moderate side of these issues, told New Yorker magazine that it was his wife's conversion to Christianity that was responsible for the divorce that ended their nine-year marriage. He said, that's a pretty big change for your wife of many years to tell you. Uh, he said, that's a shock. Well, again, so far, so good. But uh, when asked about her faith, uh, she said that she rejected what she called orthodox teachings. Uh, she felt that all religions had an expression of God, and she gave particular thumbs up to Gnostic writings, saying that they were very spiritually influential uh, to her. She said, I did feel reborn. I couldn't deny that. But I stopped my Bible study classes, uh, but I was unwilling to renounce faith. Uh, March of uh, that year, uh, she cast new light into her drift into more liberal theology. Uh, she came out and said that she had been raped and sexually abused as a child. She said the men in her life were victims of a patriarchal system. Is it understandable that a victim of trauma might react against teachings that unintentionally roused painful memories? Uh, she says she finds pleasure in seeing the consistencies between her feminist views and the gospel. She says feminism is another way of teaching what Jesus taught, that we are all full human beings with the right to have our humanity seen and respected. She said that Jesus did not see women as less than afterthoughts. I would agree with that contention. Yeah. In fact, his friendships with women were revolutionary for that time. The more I study the teachings of Jesus, the more convinced I become that the foundational aspect of his teaching is the equality of men and women in God's eyes deserving of equal treatment. Uh, you know, again, uh, I, so far so good. But then she said, I believe that Christ was the personal incarnation of divine wisdom. She then went on to say, my faith is a work in progress. She said, uh, Christianity is my spiritual home. This is where I was meant to be. And I have to discover for myself what that means. Mm. So... Uh, this was uh, this uh, report uh, that uh, we're reading from, these quotes about her life, goes back to 2017. But uh, again, since that time, Jane Fonda has made a number of statements that really would be at odds with uh, biblical Christianity. And uh, her statement on The View, uh, even if we're going to uh, concede the idea that she was kidding around, although she certainly didn't seem like she was kidding, mm. uh, you know, the, the question comes up, can someone take such a strong political view and still be considered a born-again Christian? Well, a yeah. couple insights into that. Uh, you know, the, Jesus did not ask the thief on the cross what his political views were right. uh, when he said, uh, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Uh, the issue of salvation is faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Mm. That's what saves us. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ you'll be saved in your household, Paul told the Philippian jailer, and have anything to do with political orthodoxy or anything mm -hmm. else like that. However, uh, Jesus did make some statements about out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Mm -hmm. And if you take a look particularly at 
the uh, just the icy stone cold stare with which she said that those who who were in favor of the Dobbs decision or were opposed to abortion on demand should be murdered. Very, very frightening sort of thing. So uh, a couple of mistakes I think we can make. Uh, I think we can jump in and say, oh, well, we're all entitled to a little bit of a misstep. Uh, you know, it really doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus and uh, you know, that all religions basically teach the same thing and so on. Uh, you know, if uh, Jane Fonda was just coming off, say, her conversion, uh, we might be able to excuse that. But she certainly had more than enough time to be able to explore what her faith is all about. Anyone who says, for instance, that they find comfort and solace in Gnostic writings. Uh, Gnosticism is a form of mysticism that stated that uh, the truth about God is that Jesus uh, wasn't physical. Uh, he didn't leave footprints when he walked on the beach. If you reached mm. out to try to touch him, your hand would go right through him. Uh, Gnosticism also taught uh, that either what you did with your body really doesn't matter because it's just material and the pure God can't have anything to do with the material. Or uh, there was another form of Gnosticism that stated that uh, your body is reprehensible in the sight of God and should be beaten into submission at all costs. Mm. There were the ascetic <laughs> Gnostics, as they would call them, mm. that, that would literally torture themselves to try to be rid of this flesh. And both groups would also make a very important note, which is why this question is coming up, of the belief that according to Gnostic cultural assumptions about Greek philosophy and, as you stated, mysticism, that because of the assumption the spirit is all that is good by nature and the flesh, the physical, is all that is evil by nature, that the God of Israel, who would create a physical universe, is actually evil, and that Jesus was opposed to, separate from, and in opposition to this evil deity, and that he was one of many aeons and eons that served ultimately this God so distant from And an aeon is a copy of God making a copy of God making a copy of God. That's what that means. Emanations, they call them. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's based off of the, you know, basic... Kind of, kind of Plato. Yeah, uh, his. I'm his trying to think of Christianity. Trying to think of the term that he used for it. Uh, basically, just the idea of the conscious being of God that he acknowledged being in charge of everything. Gnosticism is, without a doubt, paganism that co-ops and turns Jesus into a philosopher rather than the second person of the Trinity. And this is why we bring this up. When people say dumb things, if that was going to invalidate your salvation, they would have taken me out back and shot me, right? If the fact that you can be even, and this is... And you're joking. You're joking. We're not really going to do that. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> Well, you would have if that was the issue, but my premise is that that's not the actual problem. If, on the other hand, we're taking this, you know, even two steps forward and going all First John 4 on her, that no murderer has eternal life abiding in them. She called for murder, therefore she's not saved. That's silly. That's not what that pastor was talking about at all. When we're talking about this individual, though, in an affirmation of false doctrine and the pursuit of a Jesus that is made in the image of philosophy rather than a representation of how he revealed himself and the Father's glory, in a moment of history, this is the kicker. A fake Jesus can't save you. And that's why we need to call these things out. When an individual says the name Jesus, when they say the word Jesus, when they affirm something intellectually, 
we obviously can't know the heart. God alone reserves that right for himself. But if, on the other hand, we take a step back and, as you were saying, judge the fruit that's coming out of that relationship with God, we don't expect perfection. We don't even necessarily come to conclusions when they dig in their heels on an area of sin in their life. We're all going to have struggles before we see the Lord. But the fact that she's not only affirming, but it's starting to make an impact on her life where her real loyalties lie as far as politics versus morality go, and there is more of a distinction these days now more than ever, you're put into a position where you can come to informed conclusions, that the Jesus she's following was not the one that looked at her enemies and said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And based on her affirmations of heretical, extra-biblical doctrine, we have to say, pray for this individual, because whatever Jesus she following, it ain't the real one. Yeah, and and you know, again, uh, I think there's two equal and opposite errors that, that get made when a celebrity uh, lights up the interwebs yeah. uh, and their spiritual implications. Number one, there's people who will say, well, uh, this person, you know, this celebrity has become a Christian. Uh, therefore, boy, you know, we really need to give this person a platform and we really need to listen to what they have to say because they're celebrities and, and our culture, celebrities are kind of the priesthood. They have the, uh, the, uh, the holy anointing upon them and, and uh, we basically pattern our lives after the things they say. Mm. Well, I've been around long enough to see the latest uh, iteration of a celebrity who makes some kind of profession of faith in Jesus, only to see it crash and burn. Uh, you know, I could go back to the Bob Dylan days. Uh, you know, Bob Dylan's album, Slow Train Coming, that he came out after making a profession of faith in Christ, I think is probably one of the greatest Christian albums I have ever heard lyrically. Mm. It is powerful powerful stuff mm. and uh but and yet uh dylan went out on the road and refused to sing the old dylan songs and was trying to uh, yeah. preach the gospel and just the the blowback was intense from the old dylan freaks mm. and he basically retreated mm. uh you know he you know came gave a kind of dismissive answers about whether he was a believer or not uh you know uh some uh, one commentator, Steve Taylor, the Christian artist, said, "Is going to take a miracle to make up Bob Dylan's mind uh, where he really stands." Yeah. And so, you know, can I listen to an album like Slow Train Coming and be edified by it? Yeah. Uh, would I invite Bob Dylan to speak at our church right now and share doctrine? <laughs> no. Uh, you know, and and this you know kind of goes back to the uh, OK Boomer days, but you know, a, a, a more recent uh, example of this would be Kanye West. Uh, Kanye West uh, was uh, kind of put forward as a spiritual leader. He would have his Sunday services at, at different things uh, like uh, the festivals that he was playing at uh, and, and so on. Uh, and people were saying, oh, you know, this guy's a real spiritual leader. Uh, the politicians got a hold of him and he'd wear a uh, Donald Trump cap and uh, the, the right was saying, oh yeah, Kanye, he's on our side. Well, then Kanye went off the rails with some really over-the-top anti-Semitic statements, and everybody tried to run away from Kanye as quickly as they possibly could. Now, where is Kanye West's heart? I have no idea. Uh, it's not up to me to judge Kanye West. But what we need to be careful of is jumping on the celebrity train too quickly mm -hmm. uh, in terms of this. And and we can even have our Christian celebrities where we, we you know, some I know people that uh, follow Justin 
uh, Bieber call themselves believers and things like that. Yeah. Well, even in Christian circles, you run into people who just, you know, well, you know, John MacArthur, he can do no wrong. He's the greatest. Uh, yeah. Chuck Smith, uh, you know, never was heard a discouraging word that ever uh, proceeded from his lips. And we have our own celebrities. And, uh, you know, we need to always have a Berean attitude. In Acts 17.11, we are told that the Berean believers are more noble-minded than those at Thessalonica, for they receive the word with eagerness and search the scriptures daily to see if, talk about a Christian celebrity, the apostle Paul uh, was saying was really so, mm-hmm. according to the scripture. So just because uh, some celebrity, some hero, some person identifies maybe politically with where you're at, uh, makes a profession of faith in Christ, don't go whole hog. Mm-hmm. You know, eat the meat, spit out the bones if you must, but don't set your Bible aside just because a celebrity makes a profession of faith. That's mm-hmm. one error that we make. But the other error that I see people make quite a bit is uh, when someone who is a celebrity like this makes a bad statement and they don't like where they're coming from politically on other issues. Yeah, I could not be uh, more opposed personally to Jane Fonda's views on abortion. But, you know, even though she has made troubling statements about believing in Gnosticism and so on, and you know, you look at the fruit, and again, in Matthew 15, uh, Jesus said uh, that uh, from out of the heart perceive evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. Uh, you know, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, he said in, in Luke chapter 6. When I see something like that, it should be an exhortation for me uh, not to... Uh, you know, found the uh, Down with Jane Fonda Society, but uh, to say, boy, here's a person who really needs to know the Lord and is probably not in a place where they're being influenced, in a place of growth in their walk with God, trying to sort of uh, import or impose her previous political and philosophical biases onto the gospel. And if you don't have really solid discipleship, uh, once you get saved, a place where you can get grounded, Well, it's very easy to drift and sort of uh, remake God into our own image and likeness, sort Mm -hmm. of return the favor, if you will. So very, very important lessons to be learned from all of this. But I think what God would tell us to do is pray for Jane Fonda. And uh, by all means, we should always oppose those who advocate murdering their political opponents. I think think we're safe coming down on (laughs) that particular point. And and that's another thing, too. Well, it's just words. It's not like she did anything. There was a very prolific writer and Holocaust survivor by the name of Elie Wiesel, and his philosophy is also one we adapt when it comes to other organizations targeting people who oppose them as well. When someone repeatedly states that they're going to kill you, take them seriously. Believe them. Yeah, that's what he said. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yikes. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that. We got questions. You guys ready? Got questions. Some great The the Bible's got answers. Let's dig in. Great question. Yeah, Yeah. sure does. Steve shines. Yes. Yeah, and Steve's joining us again today. Thank you for hanging in there with your question over the last couple of days, and I see you joining us today, so that's great. Your question is up first. Steve asks, does the Bible condone slavery, and did the Jews take slaves? Now, we had a really interesting conversation about that, where you pointed out uh, that the question, does the Bible condone slavery, Oftentimes, it's used like a blunt instrument against Christians because the Bible does speak about relations between slaves and masters. Yeah. But this is a situation where we have to understand that there was more than one kind of relationship that you could 
classify as slavery, correct? Yeah, and you need to be sensitive to hyperbole because manipulative and albeit dishonest people are going to try to bank on the assumptions people will make right off the bat when they hear the word slavery, just like if someone, for example, is going to take the life of someone else and they say, he committed genocide against those person. Well, genocide and murder both involve killing, but there is a definite distinction between the two. Words matter. So when it comes to the definitions of slavery, at least as how they're put forward or even put on in Scripture, there are four ways that slavery can ultimately be defined. And this, again, is a broad strokes, but we're going to make these distinctions as far as a spectrum is concerned based on one key factor, the amount of rights that you're afforded and that are preserved. Because I don't think even the most ardent atheist would deny that the Bible does give rights to people. It does recognize value in people, maybe not to the degree that they would as humanists, but nonetheless ones that do exist. So in this spectrum, what we're going to do is basically define slavery, and hopefully you can see this all listening as fair, as the position in which you're supposed to do what you're told. The only difference between these different forms of slavery, when you're told to do something, you're supposed to do it, Mm -hmm. is how many rights you're afforded while in that position. So obviously the most familiar form of slavery that people will view and will automatically impose whenever the word comes up is chattel slavery. You're supposed to do what you're told, and you have no rights afforded to you. On pain of death. Yes, we can Mm -hmm. see this in exercise during the time of the Roman Empire and pagan Norse and, well, basically every pagan society. We see this in action with the uh, transatlantic and the trans-Saharan slave trade, the latter not as often talked about. The fact that you are considered a farming tool and nothing more, if you were killed, there was no legal penalty against you. This was an actual form of slavery that's still going on today, by the way. And when we note that, we see it as an evil because no rights are afforded to someone bearing the image of God. On the exact opposite end of the spectrum, the Apostle Paul made a comparison in the book of Ephesians of a child being a form of a slave. The only problem is that every right was afforded to them to the same degree as if they were a master. But like the chattel slavery individual, they had to do what they were told. That's that the the connection being Paul saying to children, obey your parents in the Lord. Right, yeah. and that mm-hmm. he also made a note of contrast in saying, this is also in Galatians as well, a slave is no different than a child in that he is subject to his father, his master. But when he is full grown, then he bears all rights of the master. And he right. makes this point. But notice the common theme, the definition. Slave, someone who has to do what they're told. What's the difference between types of slaves? The rights afforded to you. Zero rights is chattel slavery. Full rights is a child. Now let's tick the spectrum back from the child to what we would call modern-day employment, that someone is afforded rights of a certain time that they have to do what they're told, but other times where they're free to go and live their lives. I I should probably just clarify this for those watching. The reason I was kind of laughing was uh, I can remember uh, saying to my dad when he told me to go out and do weeding or something, I'm not your slave, and I found I really was. But go ahead. (laughs) That's the child spectrum. You have to do what you're told. So noting that point, you have workman's compensation, you have sick days, these sort of things are in a position where you have to do what you're told, but 
rights are preserved, whether it's through unions or whatever, you can take your pick politically. But note the point that we're making. In slavery, and I'm repeating this because it is that much of a manipulated issue, want to make sure I'm not misunderstood, a child, full rights, employment, most rights, chattel slavery, no rights. What is the Bible's position? Well, not quite in this position, but there's another form of slavery that would be a tick above chattel slavery. We call it indentured servitude. And note, I'm not saying yet this is where the Bible's position is. There's a form of it, but we need to make sure we define our terms from the Bible itself. Before I can do that and communicate effectively, you need to understand what I mean. Chattel slavery, no rights. Indentured servitude, some rights. Employment, most rights. Child, full rights. In indentured servitude, you were selling yourself into a position where, as is our definition of slavery, a position where you have to do what you're told for a period of time until you worked off your debt. Now, modern uh, depictions in art like Star Wars, for example, uh, in The Mandalorian, the uh, Ugnaught character played by uh, was it Nick Nolte, yeah. uh, he was a indentured servant to the Empire, but the Empire prolonged his debt to the point where they could keep him in slavery longer. That would be an abuse, but still a form of indentured servitude that we see exercised throughout history. We saw it in medieval Europe. We saw it abused in Israel's history, but not in Israel's law. Note that point. But these were forms of slavery that existed throughout the ages. And uh, one of our ancestors on uh, my grandfather's side uh, actually came to the United States as an indentured slave. Yeah. So when we're talking about, and I'm repeating this because I will be misunderstood and I want to make sure you're all understanding what I'm talking about here. When I'm in the position of a slave, I'm in a position where I have to do what I'm told. In a chattel slavery position, the one that's almost universally understood, when the word slave comes up, that means I'm afforded no rights when I'm supposed to do what I'm told. Indentured servant. As in the people of Israel under the Pharaoh of Egypt. Right. That would be chattel slavery. Indentured servitude. That would be a form of slavery where some rights are afforded to you, but not much. It's like Jacob, when he was working for seven years to be able to receive uh, the ability to uh, marry Rachel. Yeah, he had the right to put himself in that position as opposed to most chattel slavery. They were just kidnapped and put in that position. But he had to do everything that uh, his his, uh, father-in-law Laban told him. Yeah. Above that would be modern-day employment. You have many rights afforded to you, but while you're on the hour, there are penalties if you don't do your job. And, of course, a child. Full commitment, full, you have to do what you're told position, but there are a lot of legal penalties if you abuse or treat your child as a slave driver. You get the point. So when we're talking about this issue, what does the Bible say? when it's describing slavery. Well, even then, slavery is not an appropriate translation because there is a word, like is used in Exodus, for the way that Pharaoh treated the people of Israel. But when the law of Moses was given down, when the covenant was made with God's people, they were growing up in a world where they themselves had only ever known slavery, Mm. where the world at large for the next 1,500 years would know nothing apart from who is a slave and who isn't. And until, and you can read this even acknowledged by atheist scholars like um, the author of Dominion, let me get his name here in a moment, uh, the reality was until Judeo-Christian values had 
dominated the public mind, these things were and still are the sort of things that were just the status quo. Now, when we're talking about this issue, one moment, I want to get the name of the individual here, Dominion. It was a record of the history of the Christian world. Tom Holland was his name. Mm. I, I always have that name in my head, but I'm thinking, oh, wasn't that Spider-Man? Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> Tom Holland, the author, not, not the actor. Not Spider-Man, yes. the other guy. Let's be clear about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, <laughs> third Peter. Anyway, uh, when we're talking about this issue, excuse me, I want to make sure I cite my sources. Israel's position of slavery, chattel slavery, indentured servitude, employment, family. Israel's form of slavery, the kind that's outlined for them in the law, the one that God said, this is how you're supposed to exercise what you have and what the world will continue to always know, would fit right here. Mm. And for those listening on Reach Radio, I had four examples, holding up four fingers, my finger, the fifth one is right in the middle. They would have rights afforded to them, but they were still in a less than favorable position. So where do I get that from? Well, I'm not just going to say it to hand wave and get myself out of a difficult conversation. This is text from Scripture. Exodus chapter 21, the first law after the Ten Commandments that was given to Israel, the first thing that they needed to know after the moral and uh, overall spiritual codes that would outline their lives for them. Exodus 21, these are the judgments which you shall set Before them, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. Now, already there's a condition for why he's being bought, how he is entering into that position, and for how long maximum he will serve in that position. So you're right as a Hebrew servant, and I'm going to be careful with my words here because language matters, is maximum six years. Second, it's only going to be in the circumstances of him being bought because he has to pay something. But what's also interesting is noting the life he'll live during that time. In verse 3, it says, if he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, that's an interesting environment, he sh- uh, and she has borne him sons or daughters, and the wife and her children shall be her masters. Uh, he shall go out by himself. Now, here's where we get the exception. What if someone was wanting to be a servant for longer? This is what's called a bond servant, a term that's used deliberately by people like James in the New Testament describing his relationship with God. And the literal translation would be what? A slave by choice says in verse 5, but if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He also shall bring him to the door, to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. This isn't beating him, this is giving him an earring. And he shall serve him forever. And note this as well, if you're in a male servant status, these are your conditions, maximum service, maximum opportunities for relationships and how he's to leave, and a provision for him to stay if he wants to. And note, who is the one who has to approve this bond service? Is the master just going to say, I don't want to give you up, come here, give me your ear? He has to be brought before the judges. This has to be a public statement made in front of their legislation. And by the way, if he was being coerced into it, 
what better place to announce than the presence of those with control of the military? Yeah. So yeah. note that point when it's strawmanned <laughs> by. It did not bear the sword for no purpose. Yeah. When it's strawmanned by atheist groups and humanists who would make this point and saying, "Oh yeah, Israel. They they use a lot of loopholes, but these Christians they just want to enslave everybody." Yeah, Handmaid's Tale is boring. Anyway, verse seven notes: What about women? If a man sells his daughter to be a female slave. She shall not go out as the male slaves do. So she's not just going to be sold in any context like a man would. If you're in a position where you're being sold to pay off a debt, your debt, and you have to do what you're told, here are the rights afforded to a woman. If she does not please her master who has, what, betrothed her to himself, the only condition for men was what? In context of payment of debt. The only context in which women were put in this situation was a betrothal. That's all that's mentioned. But notice this, then he shall let her be redeemed. Redeemed, that's usually referred to in terms of like, you know, a a great feeling of liberation, but it's literally to be given back value, that you're put out of that position of debt. And it notes this point, He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. And if he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. If he does not do these three four, then she shall go out free without paying money. So notice the points repeated again. If she sells herself in debt, it's in the context of marriage, period. Right. If a man sells himself, it is in the payment of debt or nothing and for a maximum of six years. And if this man is to treat her in any way as a servant, it's the way you treat your daughter, if it's to your son, or to a wife, period. Now you say, well, they could still beat them within an inch of their life. It says right here that, oh, I was hoping that you didn't look it up. Verse 26, the same chapter. (laughs) If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. This isn't saying that, you know, dentists got to work too. It's making the point that if you cause any cosmetic harm to your servant, you have lost the right to be their master. So, Rights are afforded for not only how long you served, the circumstances in which you are serving, but also the situation, the treatment of you as a human being despite being a servant. And then you say, well, can they just kidnap people and force them in these situations? No, Exodus 24 states very plainly that whoever steals a man is going to be put to death. So chattel slavery does not fit if we're going to apply that to the Bible. You can't kidnap people, you can't mistreat people in a physical can't way. coerce them into it, yeah. And of course, you yeah. can't keep them for longer than six years unless you're getting married to them. And you, some women may say that's slavery and you can tell why they're single. The idea of indentured servitude is a form of it. I, I love these offhand remarks, yeah. if you note my smarminess. Yeah. Is in a way, the circumstances of how this is what's to work, but in other nations that practice indentured servitude, did they afford these rights to women? No. So you have to note there's a difference between that face value, something that can be manipulated, coerced, or even prolonged, and what the Bible spells out plainly. Because as I recall, what was one of the reasons why Saul was uh, disqualified from his position as king of Israel? 
he wasn't setting the captives free on the sixth year. Mm. So note that point. God takes the treatment of his people seriously, even if they weren't so wise with their financial decisions. Are they like modern-day employment? No, they weren't afforded nearly as many rights as we benefit from in the United States and most areas of Europe. And were they considered children? If you were a woman in that position, yes, you were supposed to be. And note, does that mean they always were? Also, no. But when the question is phrased, does the Bible condone slavery? You have to ask again, what kind? Many rights were afforded that disqualify this from being compared to the forms of slavery that we think are the only ones that exist. The ones that happen in the United States, for instance. And also the forms of slavery that are still being practiced in Muslim countries and some areas of Asia and Europe as well are all basically directly condemned and considered capital punishments. But if we're also going to say that this is where the Bible fits them, it would also be inaccurate. When Israel was given these laws, it was moral principles on how you were to treat people if you were in a situation where you needed to pay off debt. We need to make sure that we don't allow people to set terms for language and manipulate people in this way. Because, and again, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, Steve, you're probably asking this either out of curiosity or because someone else leveled this to you. But 99 times out of 100, when people level this question, they're not actually looking for an answer because if they actually cared about historical inquiry and the treatment of human beings, they probably would have read the Bible as well as maybe the historical background of this. Again, Tom Holland's Dominion's an excellent overview of Christian history from a secular perspective and noticing this is very different from how the status quo is in pagan Europe. Right. Why was it that the introduction of Christian values, though at times draconian they were, it was a <laughs> Christian abusing the law that came up with that term, by the way, they were not representing the person of Jesus Christ. They were not acting out the standards that were laid out by Moses. And if we're going to ask, well, is that the way that Christians ought to treat people because, insert this person's name here, if that name isn't Jesus of Nazareth, I don't want to hear about it. And if that term, that activity, isn't coming from Scripture, then again, I don't want to hear about it. And if you even look in Scripture and say, well, the Scripture says to do that, but people did something different. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> the Bible is honest history, and it told them what you're doing is wrong. Yeah, two words, golden calf. Yeah. yeah. yeah there so you go. go figure. Yeah. Because the Bible uses the term servant or some translation slave does not mean that it condones every form of slavery. Because pop culture and media have emotionally manipulated people into only thinking of chattel slavery when this word comes up in order to demonize Christianity and Judaism does not mean that they're telling the truth or representing accurate history. Were Israelites required to own slaves? No. Could they? Yes. What kind? Read it. Exodus 21. But if that is not on the interest of the person who's asking the question or that you're talking to, Steve, be very careful about wasting your time because that's all that's end up going to be done. So the most important thing when that hot button issue comes up is to ask people, what do you mean by slavery? And then have them define it, correct? Right. And if they give an inaccurate or an uncomparable definition to that which the Bible stands out, you got a great opportunity because then you can say, 
Well, I agree. That's horrible. It's a good thing the Bible doesn't have anything related to that kind of slavery. Yeah. They say there's only one kind of slavery. So great. So the Bible doesn't condone slavery because it's not your definition. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. you know, very, very important to get people to define their terms. And there's nothing wrong uh, in a conversation like that, you know, in a very measured and, you know, again, giving people the benefit of the doubt sort of way, just saying, well, could you tell me exactly what you mean by slavery? Right. Because that's going to save talking past each other. Yeah, that's one of the the I think the the huge problems that we get into when we share our faith with non-believers is oftentimes we're not defining our terms the same way. Yeah, and so you're talking past one another. I remember sharing mm -hmm. with a uh, veteran Mormon missionary who told me that Mormons believe that you are saved by grace through faith. Mm. That that's that's how you enter into salvation. Yep. And that befuddled me because everything I knew about Mormonism is it's a works-based system. Mm -hmm. uh, fortunately, there was an ex-Mormon there who said, well, elder, tell him what you mean by saved. And he got silent and he said, well, he knows he's lying to you or deceiving you. What he means by saved is that you get a body for judgment. That's all it means. Mm. Um, you can be eternally lost and be saved by his definition. Oh, wow. But so, unless you know that, you're yeah. talking past each other. Right, defining the terms, yeah. like and, you said. And, and both ways. When I say saved, yeah. that's the mindset that right. the Mormon would have. Uh, when the Mormon uses the term saved, and oftentimes it is, uh, in a sense, not uh, on you know, the most ethical uh, footing, uh, they're using it in a completely different term. Yeah. So really important that we get our, our terms yeah. straight. And I'm always aware when I'm talking to people of not using Christianese, you know, I mean, around here you can use these words, even like saved, you know, but, but to someone who doesn't know anything about God or the Bible, then we got to be, you know, think about how we can present that in a way that it's not Christianese and just words that only we. Yeah, you don't want to get your definition of saved from a Macaulay Culkin movie. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good, good to define our terms. Yes, that's yeah. very good. Yeah. Well, Steve, I hope yeah. that was worth the wait for you. Thank you for, for that question. A question from Taylor, and this is a great question as well. He says, is perfect submission rather than perfectionism a biblical goal? Perfect submission? So as in is the goal to from be... From the hymn? Yeah. <laughs> perfect submission, all is at rest. Uh, yes. I and my Savior are happy. Yeah, perfect submission. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Is that yeah. the goal of the Christian life, to be perfectly uh, submitted rather than perfectionism? He's saying, obviously, that perfectionism is not something we can achieve, but is the goal to be... Can we be perfectly submitted, submitted to God? Yeah. That's right. Well, yeah. I, I think uh, probably the easiest way to answer that question is to talk about the testimony of a guy who got a fur piece, as they used to say, as far as uh, his walk with God. Uh, it would be the Apostle Paul. Mm. He talked about how in his previous life, uh, he was a exemplary individual as far as Judaism was concerned. Uh, he said, uh, you know, again, uh, those of us, uh, who are the true circumcision, worship God in spirit and in truth, uh, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, so I might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, that is earthly effort, uh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Mm. In other words, by externals, Paul was doing it all. But then he says, but whenever things were gained to me, these things I've counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, that by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Mm -hmm. when Paul says, you know, again, you know, all these things I've counted, but loss, literally, uh, the the original word is like dung, garbage. He uh, uses a very vulgar yeah, term. Well, he uses the yeah, very earthy term to describe that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the the thing that he is trying to get across in this is not that his uh, you know his his bad deeds were that way. It was his good deeds that were that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all of the the righteous things that he could have on his spiritual resume were that way. But then right. he says this: not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected. But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting the things that are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God Mm. in Christ Jesus. He says, therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything else you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you, nevertheless, to the degree we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. What, what Paul is saying there is this, I haven't arrived. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's funny, the, the more mature you are in your walk, God, it's like the definition of a truly educated individual is they have a healthy uh, understanding of how little they really know. Right. Uh, they may know more than a lot of people, but the more you know, the more you don't know. Well, the more you grow in your walk with God, the more you know you need to grow yeah you know that's why you and i always have this this back and forth about uh you know again the the, the song i surrender, I surrender all, all yeah. and all the iterations that that phrase comes up with even in contemporary christian music yeah i have a hard time with it yeah because every time i say that i go not true no you know and and, and every time i turn around god is showing me another area yeah. where i haven't surrendered yeah. and where, i tried to change yeah, the words yeah, so i surrender yeah, some yeah yeah but it didn't rhyme anymore yeah, so. yeah well it's better than saying i'm a hypocrite you don't want to <laughs> say no but but the 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 long and the short of it is this is that uh, you know Taylor, our walk with god is a progressing thing yeah uh, we weren't who we were before but we aren't all we will be we all with unveiled face paul said in second corinthians uh, chapter three, mm-hmm. are beholding as in a mirror the glory of, of God, are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Lord the Spirit. Real progress is possible in our walk mm-hmm. with God, but that real progress always has to be tempered with a very healthy sense of how far we have to go. Yeah, uh, you know, if we say we have no sin, we lie, and the truth's not in us. Yeah. I've heard people say, "I'm living the hundred percent Christian life now." I go, "You better go back to step one." Because yeah. all that is is the Pharisee's guide to total holiness. It's all externals. Yeah. It doesn't deal with anything in the heart. And, and it's interesting how uh, Paul says, if you think differently about this, God will show you. Uh, if if you get on your high horse and think you've uh, made it a ways and you really progressed and, and all of this, yeah. inevitably, the Lord is going to bring you into a place where he's going to reveal to you an area of real weakness. Yeah. yeah. So in a nutshell, perfect submission would be perfect <laughs> oh be awesome but yeah. we, i'd either, love that yeah. yeah but neither will be achieved this side of heaven the idea is that it is a worthier goal in mind than just being perfect but note it's almost one and the same perfect submission to god would be a perfect life yeah yeah and, and if you've tasted and seen that the lord is good that his ways satisfy right you're going to want to over time yield yourself to his ways but boy we should never underestimate the fact that we're still carrying around this flesh 
this yeah. fallen nature that we have. Jesus yeah. could rightly say, I do all things to please the Father. He was in perfect submission to him. Yeah, and, and, and Talon, I guess maybe the best way to measure it is this, is not to say, well, I'm better than so-and-so, or I feel like I progressed more than some of these other people or this other group. Look at Jesus. Ask yourself, am I Christ-like yep. right now? Right. Did, did I live my whole day, uh, heart, soul, mind, body, in a way that Jesus would? And, you know, ask God for his opinion on the subject, yeah. not, you know, the amen chorus or people who think there was a cult group called the Manifest Sons of God who believed that they could achieve not only perfection in this life, they believed that because they attained that perfection, their leaders wouldn't die because the wages of sin would no longer be death for them. When wow. their leaders started dying out, that created a problem. Yeah. So, All right. Yeah, um, we got a minute. I can get through this question if you yeah, give it to me. Yeah, let's just see it. All right. Um, I double the, dare you. Yeah, the question is from Eli. Uh, an individual I'm asked him if uh, Ethiopia was where the Garden of Eden was and that it was the birthplace of a civilization that uh, his friend, who's an Ethiopian Jew, said is that they were the first people and the first Israelites, not Netanyahu, and then anti-Semitic remarks follow. The Falasha tribe and groups like them are based on historical revisionism, which is a lie, and a eisegesis, a mishandling of Second Chronicles 9.24, where the Queen of Sheba visited Solomon, and after, quote, she had given him all she desired, they believe that to be a pregnancy and that she returned to her own country. Nothing like that in the text, nothing to support that. Solomon was immoral, but he didn't go with women who weren't his wives. So just note that point. Yeah. If we're going to ask the question, is it true, little truth, that there were Jews who lived in Northern Africa, that during the diaspora of the Roman Empire, they migrated to Northern Africa and even as far south as Ethiopia? Yes. Does that mean that they're the true Jews and that the Messiah is going to be of a certain ethnicity? No. Be very careful of people who want to espouse this on racial supremacy terms alone. There we go. We'll see you back here on Monday. Thanks <laughs> right. for being part of the show. God bless God you guys. God bless you guys. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.